When we pray the Lord's Prayer together in our church, we end with these words, Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Uh, the official name for that final sentence is the doxology. But if you've attended worship or prayer services in other churches, then you may know that Christians don't always include that line when they pray the Lord's Prayer. In the Roman Catholic Mass, for instance, the congregation ends the prayer with the words, deliver us from evil. And then the priest adds another prayer, and then later the congregation adds the words, for the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours now and forever. In the Divine Liturgy of St. Basil, which is often used in Orthodox churches, the congregation says the whole prayer together, but only the priest says the words of the doxology. It's also true that multiple of the church fathers that we've mentioned in this study, men like Tertullian and Cyprian, Origen and Augustine, if you read their commentaries on the Lord's Prayer, you'll notice that they don't sometimes even talk about the doxology. Why is that? Why do some Christian liturgies set it apart from the rest of the prayer? Why did many of the church fathers not talk about it when they were teaching people about the meaning of this prayer? Well, there's a couple reasons for that. First, there's something different about this final line. It stands out for a reason. Up to this point, all the lines of the prayer have been forms of petition. So far, it seems prayer consists of asking God for things, asking Him for His name to be hallowed and His kingdom to come, for provision of daily bread and for deliverance from evil. But now with the doxology, we're no longer asking God for anything. Now we're simply declaring something to Him. So this final line stands out and seems set apart from what has preceded it. That's one of the reasons that Christians have tended to treat this line differently than the rest of the prayer. But there's also another reason. If you compare the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, you'll notice a couple differences, such as the different words that they use for sin. I already mentioned that. But even more striking is the fact that in Luke, Jesus does not include the doxology when he is teaching the Lord's Prayer. He just ends it with, and lead us not into temptation, and that's it. Also, depending on which translation of the Bible you are using, the doxology might not appear in Matthew's Gospel as well. Some translations, such as the King James Version, and others like it, they, they include it, but many modern translations, such as the English Standard Version or the New Revised Standard Version, they leave it out. The reason for that is because there's actually inconsistency within the ancient Greek manuscripts that these translations are based on. Several of the very earliest manuscripts that we now possess of the Gospel of Matthew, they, they don't actually include the doxology as a part of the Lord's Prayer. But then there are some other very early ones that do. Now, all of the evidence has led most scholars to conclude that this final line probably was not a part of the original text of either Luke or Matthew, but that it was added very early on in Christian history. Because early Christians, following the example of ancient Jews, ended their prayer not only with an amen, but with a word of praise to God. 
And pretty soon, this word of praise became a standard response, at least in some form, in practically every Christian church. So now, every time we say the Lord's Prayer, we're joining along with those centuries of Christians before us who have decided to end not with a request, but with a doxology. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. At least that's the historical reason. There's also another spiritual answer. Why is it important to include this statement of prayer, this statement of praise at the end of the prayer? Well, one possible reason to conclude it this way is just so you can end on a positive note. At least that's what the church father John Chrysostom said. And he's got a point. After all, the last couple of petitions have been pretty dour in their focus, asking for forgiveness of sins and deliverance from evil. Not exactly a very comforting way to end a prayer, is it? And that's why we need this doxology to, to lift our spirits, give us confidence and hope as we conclude. As John Chrysostom himself put it, having then made us anxious before conflict, by putting us in mind of the enemy and having cut away from us all our remissness, he again encourages and raises our spirits by bringing to our remembrance the king under whom we are arrayed and signifying him to be more powerful than all. For thine, he says, is the kingdom and the power and the glory. So, that's one reason why we should pray this last line, because it lifts our spirits and reminds us that the one to whom we pray is powerful and mighty and able to answer our prayers. At least that's one reason. Another reason you could say is because praise is one of the primary purposes of prayer. In fact, if you look at the Psalms, which are the prayer book of the Bible, you'll quickly discover that praise is the, one of the most striking and central features of prayer. The Psalms contain many prayers for deliverance, many petitions for forgiveness, many requests for aid and provision, but they also contain many, many declarations of praise. In fact, the final five Psalms included in the book of Psalms, they're all Psalms of praise. Every single one of them begins with the same phrase, praise the Lord. And then they go on to list reasons for praise. In Psalm 146, the Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. In the next Psalm, the Lord covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. Again and again over the course of these five Psalms, explanations of the Lord's greatness are given. And again and again, the same response is asked for. Praise the Lord. All of this all of this comes to a crescendo in the very final psalm, Psalm 150, which consists of nothing but a series of repeated calls to praise God. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. There's a reason that the book of Psalms ends this way. It's because praise, the enjoyment of who God is and what He has done, 
is the ultimate and final goal, not just of prayer, but of the whole of life. It is, as the Westminster Catechism so memorably put it, the chief end, the ultimate goal of human existence, to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. And when we conclude the Lord's Prayer with the doxology, that, that is, in a sense, what we are doing. We are enjoying and glorifying God, taking delight in His, His kingly reign, His kingdom, and His power and His glory. We're following the pattern of the Psalms and ending our prayer with praise. At least, that's one thing we're doing. But there's also something else going on. When we say, Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, we're making a statement about God, but we're also making a statement about ourselves, which is that these things, they don't belong to us. Thine, not mine, is the kingdom. That's a hard thing to remember sometimes. It's easy enough to ask God for daily bread and deliverance from evil and the coming of His kingdom, but it's hard to remember that He and He alone is the one with the power to make it happen. It's a lot easier to simply say a prayer and then get to work to accomplish all these things ourselves. In a similar way, it's easy to say, hallowed be thy name, but it's very difficult to remember throughout the day that it's God's reputation and not our own that we're supposed to be most concerned with. Because the truth is that even when we pray this prayer, even when we make it a habit of praying it on a daily basis, it's still very, very easy to fall back into our old habits of relying on our own ability and power, focusing on our own will instead of God's, and seeking honor and recognition and glory for ourselves instead of our Heavenly Father. And yet, there is something wonderfully liberating about letting go of all those old ways of living and entrusting ourselves in prayer to God's care. There's something very freeing about not focusing on your own honor and reputation and seeking God's glory instead. I was reminded of this recently when I came across a poem by the Anglican poet Malcolm Geit. It's actually a reflection on this very line of the Lord's Prayer. Here's what Malcolm Geit says in his poem. The kingdom and the power and the glory, the very things we all want for ourselves. We want to be the hero of the story and leave the others on their dusty shelves. How subtly we seek to keep the kingdom. How brutally we hold on to the power. Our glory always means another's thraldom, but still we strut and fret our little hour. What might it mean to let go forever? to die to all that desperate desire, to give the glory holy to another, throw all we hold into that holy fire, a wrenching loss, and then a sudden freedom, and given glories, and a hidden kingdom. There's a lot to digest in this poem, but one thing that immediately stands out to me is the competition that he sees between God's power and glory and our own. When we talk about the kingdom and power and glory, we're talking about the very things he says that we all want for ourselves. We want to be the ones in charge. We want to wield the power. We want the honor and glory. We want to be, as he puts it, we want to be the hero of the story, leave the others on their dusty shelves. 
And because of that, we often experience life as a constant competition. Who's going to get the promotion? Who gets to call the shots? Who beat the competition to, to get accepted into the best school or win that award? Who's receiving the most attention? Who's the most popular? Now, these are the kind of questions that confront us on a daily basis, and they reflect a world in which we're all trying to be the hero of the story. But you can't want to be the hero of the story and also pray, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And so, Malcolm Guide says, if you're going to pray this doxology, then you've got to be willing to let go of wanting all those things. If you're going to pray this prayer, you've got to be willing not to seek the glory, but to give it wholly to another. And that's not easy to do. In fact, he says, you'll experience it as a wrenching loss. That's his description. I love that phrase, a wrenching loss. But then after that loss, then he says comes a sudden freedom. That last line of the poem is particularly interesting. A wrenching loss and then a sudden freedom in given glories and a hidden kingdom. But why does Malcolm Guy say there is freedom in given glories and a hidden kingdom? Well, a hidden kingdom is one that, as Jesus said in his parables, one that is active all the time, whether we see it or not. You and I may look at the world around us and see a world that's in crisis and chaos, a world in rebellion against God, a world that's, that's going down the tubes. And we can get very anxious in the face of everything going on around us. But Jesus has promised that he is bringing in his kingdom, even if we can't see it, even if it's hidden. Now, that's very comforting and very freeing if you actually believe it. And it's not just a hidden kingdom. There's also freedom, Geitz says, in given glories. I like that phrase, given glories, because it gets at something that's at the very heart of Jesus' message. You know, it's interesting for as much as Jesus criticized people seeking glory and honor from those around them, he never actually says that glory and honor are a bad thing. In fact, quite the opposite. For instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, right before Jesus teaches his disciples the Lord's Prayer, he tells them not to pray in such a way that others will see them praying and think highly of them. Because if you do that, he says... If you seek glory from the people around you, then that's all you'll ever get. Instead, Jesus says, pray in a way that doesn't call attention to yourself. Because then, then God himself will honor you. Then you will receive glory, not from the people around you, but from your Father who is in heaven. I think that's what Geit means when he talks about given glories. And it's why this prayer brings freedom. Because when we say thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, we're letting go of all of our own attempts to get these things for ourselves. We're stepping out of the rat race and we're trusting that the one to whom we give our glory will see what we do in secret and give us glories in return. Glories, as Jesus says, beyond what we can possibly imagine. So be bold in your prayer. Don't hesitate. 
pray as Jesus taught you.